Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And remember, while there are no commercials in these episodes, you can always support the show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade or by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Today we are rewinding all the way back to October the 19th, 2012, episode 1002, The Why, What, and How of Modern Homesteading. And of course this is uh, Workshop Week. It's why you're getting uh, rewinds this week, at least. Uh, I think it's going to be three days. I'm... I'm setting this up the week prior to the workshop. This is actually uh, Wednesday the 3rd that I'm uh, I'm recording this new intro for you. And so I think, uh, just kind of giving you a heads up, that what we're going to have for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday is live feeds from the workshop that will be out on YouTube. Uh, we're going to try to make that happen. That's my goal. Uh, and with that being taken care of, I think we'll just forego the podcast for those two days. So we'll just have three rewinds this week. I wanted to chat with you a little bit about why I s selected this episode. Um, again, this episode goes back a long way, all the way back to 2012. I, for those that uh, have been around that long, you know that in 2012 I was still living at our homestead in Arkansas. By this point... We had started to look at moving back to Texas. We were actually looking at property, etc. It was in January of 2013 that we made the move here to Nine Mile Farm, which is, is, is in all likelihood our forever home. And it was just an interesting time for me in trying to figure out what I wanted to do for the longevity of my family. And it got me thinking about this topic of modern homesteading and how it was on a rebound in a, in a real way. Looking at it now, I feel that it was a very forward-looking episode. and Because what it talks about is all the problems that we were dealing with at the time and how those problems push people to this mindset, the mindset uh, of our ancestors and the nostalgia of, of, you know, I'll talk about old movies and TV shows and stuff like that in this episode when we get into the original content here in just a moment. But tell me... That this entire COVID, COVID's pandemic thing hasn't made the majority of people who were even remotely open to the idea of homesteads and homestead based communities literally go all in. And what I was presenting at the time is that this is a solution. This is a solution to restore normalcy to humanity, because the way that we live in the modern world is so far from normal that it's insane. That it is not normal for humans to spend 60 hours a week of their life dedicated to a job that they hate. That that's not normal. That's not a normal way to behave. And a lot of you, well, most people work 40 hours, but they, they, they spend 60 hours a week in relation to a job. Because a lot of that time is spent inside a car, or I refer to them as mobile metal coffins. I didn't really get into it, but you know, when you start homesteading and you start developing community and you start developing local commerce and things like that, it's a natural extension then, well, if one or both parents are going to be home the majority of the time, all of a sudden I don't need the state for uh, free daycare, which is actually very expensive when you look at property taxes. 
So why do I need to give my child over to the state for an education? I don't really get into it in this episode, but it sure ties into it. This episode from 2012 feels a lot like it was meant for the time we're in right now. And that's why I chose it for this week. And with that, let's go ahead again, and we're rewinding back to October the 19th, 2012. And I think you'll find it fits 2021 quite well. Hi folks, it's Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 19th, 2012, and this is episode 1002 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And I know what you're thinking. It's time for calls to the Think Line, not this week. Um... With everything going crazy yesterday and all the work that went in episode 1000 and because the site going down yesterday uh, took me away from uh, doing the uh, the video work that I wanted to do yesterday, um, I'll tell you what, what we're going to do is something a little bit more laid back today, a little bit easier on me than a listener call show. And something, frankly, a lot of you guys have asked for more of recently because we do so many interviews and so many feedback shows and things like that now. I've had a lot of you guys that say, you know, I miss the old days when it was just jagging a car or just jacking this house before there were lots of interviews. When it was pretty much, you know, Jack just talking to us. Well, that's what it's going to be today. And we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects, uh, homesteading. And kind of a modern take on homesteading, kind of the old and the new mesh together. And we're going to call today the how, what, and why of modern homesteading. And I think it'll be a great show. We've talked about the subject a lot in the past. This will be a different way that we're coming at it. A lot of things are going to be the same stuff. Because, well, you know, feeding yourself and taking care of yourself and taking care of animals and taking care of your community, well, that pretty much has the same mechanics to it. But what we're going to do is maybe look at it from a different vantage point today. And I find a lot of times what really seems to help people with this show is by having new ways to think about things, all of a sudden you go from I can't do it to I can do it. And I think that's something we heard a lot in episode 1000. So we're going to try to empower you today with that, with the how, what, and why of modern homesteading. Uh, let's get into this. So what's the whys? But well, let's start out. I want to start out with something else. I want to start out with kind of what got me thinking about this. So somewhere recently I heard somebody say the old cliche, what's old is new again, right? And, and I, I was, they were talking about gardening. Uh, we were having some conversation about gardening and how like everybody's grandparents did this and now everybody's doing it again. And I think that's really the way to see it. But, you know, that saying's been around a long time and meant a lot of things. There's people that, you know, in the fashion world that like something dreadful like the bell bottoms come back for six months or something and they go, you know, it's old as new again. Uh, that type of thing. But I think there's a deep meaning to it. And I think it's because of restlessness and unhappiness and a knowing that something's wrong. And it makes us get nostalgic and it makes us look back and there's good and bad from that. We see all of the good but little of the bad from the past. And that's kind of how I want to set the tone. But let's look at the good. Remember right after 9-11, and this is something that everybody did but a lot of people did, you know, some of the highest rated TV shows, like within the first couple weeks after 9-11 and then for several months, were like reruns of like I Love Lucy and the Three Stooges and the Andy Griffith Show. Because you know what happened? People were just so shocked, so much in pain over what had gone on, that they just wanted something that would make them feel normal again. And looking back made them feel normal. How about this? Everybody know the, the movie, A Christmas Story, the little kid that wants a BB gun, you'll shoot your eye out, kid? You know, it takes place in like, it's, you know, I, I'd say it's like probably the 19... 
like 30s or 40s. I mean, uh, I could see it being 1948. I could see it being 1935. About the only years I'd say that don't fit in there would be like 41 to 45, the war years, because there's absolutely no mention of the war. But it, it feels kind of like this Depression-era thing, but yet the family's taking care of each other. And there's one network, I think it's either USA or whatever network it is, plays that thing for 24 hours straight on Christmas Day, or Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, something, or all day Christmas Day into the next next day. And, you know, they only do that because people watch it. Even though it's on like 24, you know, 24 hours straight, people watch it. Why do you think people watch stuff like that? Because we know when we look back, That we're, we're looking back at some of the things that we've lost, and we think to ourselves, wouldn't it be great if we had that? And this is happening with homesteading today, back to the land movements. But I do think something's different this time that gives it more sustainability, because this, what's old is new again, this has happened before. You know, in, in the 60s, everybody was a hippie and eating granola and chanting for peace, and then they kind of grew up, and some of them went to work, and the ones that were still hippies and didn't know what to do, they went to the, and the back to the land movement was huge in the 70s, and even the early 80s. And then it kind of just faded into the distance. And there were people that, you know, did it straight through and are still doing it today. I've had people on the show that have been doing it that long. So no disrespect to somebody that, you know, started homesteading in the 60s and is an older person today still doing it and teaching your kids and your grandkids. I, uh, it's great. But it went out of vogue, if you know what I mean. And I think it's because it was totally a look back. Today I feel more encouraged because I think the homesteading movement is much more a look into the future. I see this when I go to things like permaculture events, and there's 21-year-old kids there, 18-year-old kids there, and they're actually trying. I'm seeing kids with a pick and a shovel doing manual labor because they want to, even though society has told them it's a loser's, it's a loser's play. I, I, you know, when I stand in a field, And I see 15, what I look at as kids, and I always got angry when people called me a kid when I was 22 years old. Like, damn it, I just spent three years in a freaking army. Don't call. But they are kids to you when you're 40, you know? And the idealism and everything, but yet they're out there and they're, they're physically working. And they're not even doing it on their own property. They're doing it for the purpose of learning. 21-year-old kids are not looking back to 1930 and going, I wish it was that way now. They're trying to grab what was back there and bring it forward and take a picture of it with their iPhone. And that kicks ass. Don't resist the way technology integrates with this. This is why I said things like in 13 and 13, you want to learn a new computer language, you want to learn graphic arts, whatever it is, make it one of your 13. Because we're not going to throw away the new, and that's what's going to make this work. You know, you want to go back to 1930, but you want solar panels. They didn't have solar panels in 1930, not anything that we would think of as a solar panel today. You got it? So I want to kind of set the stage that way as we go into this, that this is about building for the future, not just waxing nostalgic from the past. This is about what are the skills, the knowledge, the, the, the information from the past that we, we turned away in the me generation of the 80s and 90s, right, in the early aughts. Can you believe that one day you're going to be like, well, back in 06, 
right? Remember the old timers that talked like that when you were a kid? You're going to be that guy someday. Think about that, even if you're a young person. In fact, you'll really be doing it if you're like 18 right now. You know, you're really going to talk about back in aught, aught eight, aught six, something like that one day, because you're going to be like nearing the turn of the other century. Think about that. So there's this old and this new connection I'm trying to draw for you there. So what are the whys? Why do we do this other than waxing nostalgic for the past? I think the number one thing that's gotten people in the mindset today initially is saving money. And I think that's great. And I think it's one of the few good things to come out of the Great Recession. It's, it's forced people to take a look at what they're doing with their money and their finances and to go, you know what, this doesn't work anymore and I just can't act as if it will always be here. Because this is the reality that the, need, the news and the TV and nobody wants to tell you. For most Americans, the majority, now remember majority is 51%. So if you could say 60, 70, 80%, even if there's 20% real unemployment, that means for 80% of people, very little has changed financially. There's some inflation. There's some people stuck in homes that don't want to be there. There's some, but basic income and then basic ability to buy stuff is pretty much the same. But yet... The mentality changed. They real, it, it wasn't that people became broke. It's when you saw other people who didn't fare as well as you. Do you know what happened? You realized you were already broke and you've been broke for 10 years. You didn't feel broke because the cards paid for things. Or the money paid for things, but at the end of the month there was no more money, but there was new money coming in, so don't worry about it. And hey, 5% went to retirement, so I'm good. But then people looked around and went, well, what the hell would I do if all the flow stopped? And this concept of, you know what, we need to be building something. Because here's the thing about homesteading as a whole. Initially, for most people, it doesn't save money directly. Because there's an investment phase. Homesteading is channeling what used to be an expense into an asset. And that requires investment. So saving money is the long play with homesteading, not the initial play, which tells me something else. This isn't like the old days with homesteading when, when people were just broke ass, had nothing, and just chopped an acre out of the woods because they could and claimed it, and, and that was like immediate survival, immediate return. When we're taking our lifestyles that we already have and altering them and investing so that we can maintain that, then we're thinking about the future. That's the big difference for modern homesteading. And in the old days, they were thinking about the future, too. It's this gap in the middle where we've been waxing nostalgic to the past. We want sustainability. We want to be like that homesteader. Trust me, the homesteader in 1880, out in the Midwest, used every piece of technology he could get his hands on at the time to better his existence. He just tried to make sure he wasn't fully dependent on it. The next thing is improving health. And I think that people are really starting to get an understanding of how bad the food is that we're eating. You know, every time the media and the news and all does a story on people being fat, and they show the pictures where they don't show the person's head, and they show the person, people waddling all over the street, 
They don't go to like Fatville or something. They just go wherever they're at. They just go out on the street in a downtown area and they find all the fat people that they want to film. By the way, I don't know if any of you ladies, I never think this way, but my wife does. And I wonder if any of you ladies always think this way. My wife, whenever she sees that, especially like it's local news, so it's like Little Rock or Hot Springs or something, she goes, you know, you can't tell who the person is if you don't know them, but if that was your fat ass, you would know it. How embarrassing would it be if you were sitting at home and, like, they did a show on being fat and they showed you waddling down the street? I want to, just a little aside there to the female mind. But we, we see that, and they tell us it's because we're eating too much fat. We're eating too You know what it is? It's because we're eating freaking garbage. Our grandparents lived on biscuits and gravy and bacon, and they weren't fat. Because it was homemade biscuits and gravy and bacon. I, I'm paleo. I don't do the biscuit thing much anymore. But we can't argue with the facts that our, our, our grandparents ate a lot of food. They did. And they ate high-fat food. And they ate, in some level, high-carbohydrate food. But they ate food that was seasonally based. You know what? When they were hunting... In the, in the, in the winter, and they were spending a lot of times outside in the cold, that's when they ate higher carbohydrate loads. And in the summer, they ate more salads and meats. And, and, and things like that, you know? So, we, when we look at health, it's not just we're eating more, it's we're eating garbage. We're eating crap. We're eating genetically modified, herbicide-laced, pesticide-containing, nutrient-deficient garbage. Even when we go eat vegetables out of the store, it's still coated with this garbage. And then people look at the price of organic, and they realize the government's taken over organic. They go, you know what? I, I know what goes in my backyard. And I know what goes in my neighbor's backyard. So if we can start doing this and, and growing our own and trading and buying from local people, it's all part of the homesteading movement, then you know what? At least I know what I'm eating. And that leads me to the next, well, before I go there, and it's not just the, the, the physical health. It's the mental health. People blame Facebook, right? It's Facebook's fault that people don't have community anymore. It's Facebook's fault that families don't communicate anymore. Bullshit! You know how many daughters communicate with their daddies from college on Facebook? Don't blame Facebook. Maybe Facebook's like blaming the phone. Blaming the phone's like blaming the telegraph. And blaming the telegraph's like blaming a freaking smoke signal. Can people get wrapped up into the computer? Yes, people used to get wrapped up into books. People have gotten wrapped up into shit ever since there's been shit to get wrapped up into. Facebook, the internet, they're just means of communications. What's destroyed community and family is a lack of activity. It's a lack of people actually going out and doing things that require them to get together. And it's a lack of connection to what's real. And we lost that connection long before the Internet was anything. That connection was severed. When we were in the mid-'80s, it was already dying, folks. I never wanted Jack. The only Internet that existed back then was the Internet me and my geek friends played on, right? And you didn't know what it was, and most of you had no idea what to do back then. You had to dial into one modem, one modem to another, and there were chat boards. That's what we were using back then. You know, at least we were doing it together, though, Right? And we were figuring out how to hack things and, and make programs and do things together. That, but it was already dying. You know, when we stopped having the homestead ethic, it's when it started to die. And what people find out, every person that writes me says, I put a garden in, 
And once I started working in it, I felt better. I put my hands in the dirt. So it's a, a mental and physical improvement in health. The next is just taking control. I was kind of on it already with, like, I'm going to control what I eat, but it's with control, period. This is another part. The reason people are, are not communicating with each other is when you're not in control, you're not healthy. Right? And people don't feel in control. I gotta go to work to a job I hate, to a job I don't like, to work for some asshole that doesn't appreciate me, to make less money than I'm worth, to come home to pay bills that I never can pay, so that I can go back and buy a new car so I can get to work dependably in the car to the job that I, and I'm in a freaking circle, I'm in a damn hamster wheel, and I don't like this shit, and I don't wanna be here. That person mentally is not in a position to be part of a community. They'll go to church or something like that. Now, some activity they do for an hour or two a week, and they'll go there, and they'll have, and the second they leave, everybody goes to their cars and goes away. Nobody talks to their neighbors, and it's not because people don't care. It's because people are so out of control in their own lives that whenever there's an opportunity for peace and quiet, they just, just want it to stop. They don't want to put effort into listening to somebody else. I don't want to hear about anybody else's problems. I don't have energy to fix the problem of my neighbor. I, I just have a moment for it to stop. Have you ever felt that way? But when you start to take control, all of a sudden you end up with, instead of a deficiency, you end up with a surplus. And when you have a surplus, then you can share. And then you can reconnect. But you have to take control first. And I think that's one of the biggest things that nobody talks about. You don't read about that in Mother Earth News or Grit Magazine or any of the homesteading blogs. It's not just about taking control of what you eat and taking control of your health. It's about taking control of your life. And the next one is building value in our homes and our communities. We're starting to realize that we live in deserts. Green deserts. Freaking Raleigh St. Augustine or Bermuda grass and sprinkler systems and everybody's freaking house looks the same and everybody's the same and it's like Stepford wife shit everywhere and handbags and freaking SUVs for freaking carting kids around when you have one freaking kid that's two years old and we're starting to realize there's no freaking value in our communities. They're, they're empty piles of shit. I'm sorry. That's what most of the suburbs have become. Empty piles of shit. You walk into somebody's house, it doesn't feel like a home. It feels like a freaking display case. Ugh. Where did we go that we got here? And then people start to realize, you know what? I want people to walk into my home and feel like they're welcome. They don't want everything so freaking perfect that like, I don't want to touch anything. Have you ever been in somebody's house like that? They say, make yourself at home. And you're like, shit, I don't know. Like That doesn't even look like there's an ass groove in that chair. I, I don't know if you're supposed to sit in that chair or not. You know, That cold feeling. You go in somebody's backyard, it's that way. Everything's perfectly landscaped. Boring. And as we start to move into this homesteading concept, also we start to build value in our communities, in our homes, in our yards. You know what makes a, a, a home valuable? When everybody in the neighborhood would prefer to come to your house rather than stay in their own. We're talking about just plain real estate marketable value. If you have that, you have a house that'll sell. Ask me how I know sold a house in three days in the middle of the biggest real estate recession on planet Earth. Okay. Don't, you know, there's practical application behind the, the, the mechanics of this as well. Three days, folks. 
Three days. Everybody go, Jack, how are you going to sell your house? No worries. Everybody going, I don't know. I had so many emails, so many. Three days, gone. Asking price. In the middle of a real estate recession. How? Because that's what it was. And we're starting to realize that that's what we want to do. We want value. So let's get into the what. What are the, the things we need, the what's behind modern homesteading? Number one is food production. I mean, uh, these lists really aren't in any particular order, but on the what's, food production is, is the biggest thing when it comes down to homesteading is food production. If you don't have food production, you don't have a homestead. Because what it means is that every single calorie that has to go in your body, your family's body, your dog's body, your chicken's body. Well, if you had chickens, you'd have food production, right? So, But everything that exists that lives in your home that needs caloric intake requires external inputs. It means you have to expend financial energy to bring it in because nobody's just going to give it to you for free because they like you. Maybe your neighbor will give you a can of beets or something. But in general, you're going to have to do something for your food. And you know, water, in, especially in the suburbs and in most communities and all this cheap. You turn the faucet, the water's going to come in. We need water, but it's there. It's there. That doesn't mean we're not going to expand that capacity to be more self-reliant, but it's, it's pretty simple. You know, security, unless we have a, you know, without rule of law scenario breakdown or something like that, basically the police provide the security. And you're going to pay the taxes whether they're there or not. So, you know, you can only have to worry so much about it. But if you don't have food, you will need food in a day. Right? You get rid of all the food in your house and sit in your couch and see how long it takes you to go, yeah, I'm going to go to the store and get something to eat. So we got to have food production. So it's one of the, the key things, and it's one of the first things people do because we intrinsically know that it's important, but it's not the only the only thing we need to do. One of the biggest things that we need to do to change modern lifestyles into homesteading lifestyles is understand that our animals need to have jobs. right? So if we get an animal, it needs to have a purpose. And I love my dogs, but my dogs have a purpose. My dogs have a purpose. Um If I'm having problem with squirrels raiding the garden, the dog's staying outside for a while, and he will fix it. Uh, my dogs provide security around my homestead. The one's older, and he's not that good at it anymore. Other than he'll bark and growl, so we know something's up. But he's done his duty. He's earned his. Re he's retired, right? Blackie is 16 years old. He's a black lab mix. His average life expectancy is like 11 and a half. And he has done his job for a long time, and he gets to ride easy. But he had a job. He had a purpose. He had a function. And he still does it a little bit, just like Grandpa on the farm. But he's earned it. Max is young and in his prime. He's expected to do certain things. He's trained. He knows to not let strangers near the house, and he knows to be called off immediately. And when we get our next place and we have more livestock and things like that around, he'll learn to defend that livestock and not harm it. He'll have a job. And let me tell you something about, you know, when people hear that in this freaking do-gooder world that we live in today, they're like, that's not a dog. is supposed to have a job. Dog is my little baby. And I mean, you know what? Dogs are supposed to have jobs. It, imagine how freaking bored you would be if you didn't have any kind. And even if you don't work work, if you had no job, if you're you, all you were supposed to do is sit around on a pillow, eat twice a day, drink water, take a pee, take a crap, take a walk. How bored would you be? 
Why do you think dogs have so many behavioral problems today? They need something to do. But not just that. Like, when we bring chickens in, okay, that chicken's job isn't just to provide eggs. It's to cultivate. It's to do pest control. Right? And chickens are good. Ducks, same thing. They don't scratch as much, but they do provide nutrient, and they do provide pest control. And they provide eggs. They have a job. They have a function. That's key to homesteading is that animals brought into a homestead need to have functions and jobs. And those jobs and functions need to have interrelationships and be planned. You don't just get a couple chickens and stick them there. You've got to think about where they're going to be, how you're going to control them, when you're going to move them around, why you're going to do it. Next is we need to be looking at creation of income. Now, I just had a guy email and say on a show that I did, you know, look, um, we're going to get this law where we can finally get chickens in our backyard. But we can't slaughter our chickens, we can't sell our chickens, we can't sell the eggs. There can only be so many chickens, you know, and I want to sell eggs. And I said, you know, you're probably not going to sell eggs in the backyard. But my next, my next statement was, if you have extra eggs and you have a neighbor that will give you, you know, four bucks a dozen and you have an extra dozen eggs a, a week and you, you it's between y'all, then just, just do it. But don't put up a sign. If you can put up a sign, if you live in a place where you can do that, then might might be a good idea. Right? But... I just want to understand that, like, that's only one type of income. And, and if you were, you know, putting out four dozen eggs surplus a week and selling them for four bucks, that's $16. It's nice to have, but it ain't going to really pay a lot of bills, is it? I mean, it ain't bad money, but for the small flock, it's probably what you're looking at. Sixty-four bucks a month, maybe it at least pays for the supplemental feed your chicken needs and a little bit of extra nutrient and grit and scratch. Maybe it makes the flock self-sustaining, and that's okay. But I mean, I think we need to think bigger about income because the homesteaders of old all had unique skills. Some were also blacksmiths, right? Today's blacksmith is the guy that can build stuff, no matter what it's built out of. The reason you went to a blacksmith. You know, 150 years ago, is if you didn't make it out of wood, you made it out of metal. And if you needed it and it was made out of metal, then a blacksmith made it. They made stuff, right? And a lot of things that were made out of wood needed some metal parts. So even if you knew how to do the woodwork, you would go to the blacksmith and say, I need some angle brackets or something. He would make you some up. So building, creating things of any kind that can be sold. Um, when I was a kid, my grandmother was huge into shelling. She would spend days at the beach in the summer just collecting shells. collecting, And she ended up with boxes and bins of shells. And eventually she went, i got to do something with this. She started making little crafts, right? And she's retired by this point. And she would make all these little different shell mirrors and frogs and all kinds of crap. And she went out to all these little stores and said, hey, I've got some stuff here. Would you like to stock it? And a lot of the stores says, we don't really want to pay for it. And she said, well, it's just sitting what if we do it on consignment? You take it, you sell it, you pay me as it sells. I'll keep an inventory sheet. I'll come back once a month, resupply you whatever you need. If something starts to move really fast, here's my phone number, call me, and I'll, you know, I'll come back quicker than that. And if it sits for a month and it doesn't sell, then we'll just I'll take it home and you've lost nothing. Pretty easy sell for the mom and pop shops. Next thing you know, she had about 20 of them going. And she, did she make a ton of money? No, but she made a few hundred dollars a month doing something she loved that was supplemental to her life. And I'll tell you what, in 1982, three or $400 meant something. 
It was more significant than it is today. And I guarantee you, if I sent you a $300 a month check, you wouldn't send it back to me and say, I don't need it. Like, I'd say $300 in the mid-80s is probably worth at least $700 today. $700 a month playing with shells. I mean, so, and it doesn't have, I'm not saying go start playing with shells. I'm just saying that there's a million little things that we can do that can create a few hundred dollars of income here and there. And all of that starts to increase our self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And if our home is the location that I, that is performed at, then we're starting to increase the effectiveness of the home. We're starting to do the old thing I've talked about so many times, turning that home from consumer into producer. And that's the big thing. Right now, you know why I call the suburbs a pile of shit? They're sterilized crap full of people that don't talk to each other that people have the biggest portion of their wealth consumed by. That's a pile of shit. I'm sorry. We need to turn that around. And development of income creation is part of how we do that. Next thing we need to do is develop our skills. We need to be the way that, you know, you know men should be like men in the 1950s. If something broke in the 1950s, dad fixed it. You know, and if he couldn't fix it, well, he tried first. And if it ain't going to kill you, give it a shot. And if you ain't going to make it cost more, give it a shot. If it's electrical and you ain't an electrician, call an electrician. Right? If you're jacking around with a gas line, call a plumber. Don't blow yourself up or electrocute yourself. But if there's a hole in the wall, try to spackle that sucker. If it looks like crap, knock it out. Do it again. What have you lost? If you finally go, I just can't make this look worth a damn, call a guy in and get him to do it. Right? But try it. Because that skill will then translate to other skills. You know, I see people going out and buying sheds and having prefab sheds delivered. They can save a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars by building a shed. Build a shed. Guess what you've learned? You've learned how to frame. You've probably learned how to install doors. You've probably learned how to install windows. You've learned how to do roofing. You've learned how to build a freaking house. Right? And that's part of why people get overwhelmed by it because they realize that's really what you're doing. You're building the frame of a house, the shell of a home. But you know what? Learn to do it. If it ain't perfect, oh well. You'll learn to make it better. So skill development is another what of homesteading. Energy independence. And I say even by percentage. We had the guy on from DTI Solar, writes for Backwoods Home Magazine. And he was talking about how, you know, if we just do enough with solar to do things like, if we have a well, keep the well running without necessarily having to power the well fully. So if we have an above ground storage tank, and that storage tank creates gravity pressure flow so that our water will still run even when the power's out, and we have our main well pump that generally provides the pressure, the power, and keeps the tank full, but the power's out, and we have a secondary redundant pump that's a low-draw pump that only trickles a little bit of water out of there, way too slow, but we have this 500-gallon tank of water, this gravity flow into the house, pressure might be a little lower, but it'll work. We can take a shower, we can take a bath, we can do the dishes, we can water the garden, and when we use some, then that little trickle just kind of tops the tank off. It might take a long time to replace 100 gallons, but as long as we ratch, so there's ways to energy independence. Passive solar heating, like Stephen Harris has talked about. Generators, right? Generators are not independent, but in, in a way they are because I can store fuel, so I have a self-reliance component there. There's a many ways to do it. This show's not all about different methods of energy independence. It's just a component I think needs to be in there. The biggest thing that I think gets left out 
And one of the biggest things that we need to be doing as homesteaders, whether it's in the middle of the suburbs or out in a, a rural area or out of sticks like I am right now, resource identification. And resource identification is about tying into your community and finding out what's available. One of my greatest resources is our composting facility. Because I can go down there today if I want to with a pitchfork and load up a full load, eight foot by four foot pickup truck bed of compost for free. It'll take me about an hour to do listening to the radio and drinking some cold water out of my well, which is great tasting water. Not a bad way to spend an hour, hour and a half. And I'll probably meet somebody and talk to somebody. But it's not just that. I went there and, you know, all these people are bringing brush and stuff to be composted and shredded. And there's all these beautiful logs everywhere. So I went to the guy in the little house to let you in. I said, is there any reason we can't take you know, some of that material that's going to be composted before it's composted? He said, you take whatever you want. The only thing we don't allow is the use of chainsaws here because when we did that, we had people coming up here basically running their whole firewood business out of, uh, out of our, out of our you know, compostables. So we know when we don't let people use chainsaws, they don't get crazy with taking too much. And I thought, hmm. Firewood, you say. And you go over there and there's all these oak pieces of white oak and white ash and other hardwoods laying there. So you fill your compost up, you throw a bunch of logs on there, you come home, you cut it up into firewood size, set it aside to dry some, split it out later, and let it season. Huh, wait a minute, you know? Wait, is this, so yeah, well I couldn't run a firewood business, I could get a couple cords of wood there. And no one seems to care. Well, I can also get some of the other wood and use it for hugaculture beds. That's just one resource. Now, if I don't talk to people, do a little bit of investigation, I don't even know that place exists. And if I need compost, I'm buying it for, you know, $8 a bag at Lowe's. That's just one example. You know, are there industries around you that produce waste that can be harvested? You know, one of the biggest resources, I watch people buy mulch. And then rake leaves every fall and stick them in garbage bags. I'm glad they do it. I don't care that they're stupid. I just don't want you to be stupid. In the fall, right now, go get their bags of leaves. You know, go, no one cares. Just drive around right now. It's the perfect time. Drive around, throw your, you know, your truck or, you know, your car. You can't carry as much, but you can throw some in the trunk. Just drive around your neighborhood. You see, on, on garbage day, the day before garbage day, evening is the best time. And when you see a bag and it's all puffed out looking, you think, oh, it's a leaf bag. Take it. You know? Run it over with a lawnmower. Put it through a leaf shredder. Or use it whole. Use it for compost. Use it for mulch. It's free. You know? Is there, a, is there a stream nearby that's good for fishing? A lot of people think, oh, I don't have anywhere to fish. I need a bass boat. And there's a little creek down the road full of bluegill. Learn where your resources are. Are there places to forage and, and things like that? Find your resources. And let's finish up with some of the how. I think that, you know, we started out with food, so gardening and permaculture are huge here. And, and, and I think that people really need to think more about how they plan their gardens, what they're going to plant, sit down with a piece of paper, plan it out. I've also learned some things over the years. I've been a huge fan of square foot gardening since I first learned about it. I kind of went away for it, but I stayed with a lot of the planting densities of square foot gardening. I even went to some of the biointensive densities. What I've realized is once you get past a few beds, you know, you start talking about eight, 
nine beds, and you're looking at like five foot wide by ten feet long, pretty sizable. You can grow more food there than most people are going to want to do. And in opening up those densities, you end up with much healthier plants. So I'm not big on the densities anymore there. But the other thing that I've learned is probably the most overlooked thing with homesteading is setting up irrigation. If you can set up automated irrigation, and culture can eliminate a need for a lot of this. But what I've learned also in culture, unless we're doing big, giant sepulchs or beds, in the really harsh environments, a lot of times you're going to need to water in a couple months out of the year, and maybe a few more. And doing hugu culture, combining that with automated irrigation, and running the irrigation during the time of year when your plants are stressed, you get amazing results. I watered our hugel beds, and I, like I've been saying, I think we need to call them like woody beds or something like that, because they're not really hugel beds, what we're doing in this country. And for those that maybe have not heard of this, but hugel cultures, we bury wood. And the wood rots, and it becomes a sponge, and it helps reduce irrigation requirements. It also becomes a nutrient trap, and while it takes nutrient up in the first season, it slowly releases like a time-release capsule in a second. Abbreviated version, but that's, that's what we're talking about for the new listener, right? When, when you do those things combined, you get amazing results. And opening up the planting densities a little bit, there's a little bit more weed action to deal with. But weeds, to me, in a properly prepared bed are just not a problem. You let them grow right up to where they're going. They might start to go to seed. The flowers are fine because they're bringing in pollinators. And they look like they're just about to go to seed. And you just yank them out of the ground and lay them on this organic matter and mulch. I mean, it, they do so much dynamic accumulation of minerals. I don't understand why people worry about I got weeds growing everywhere, and my wife's not allowed to put a weed eater to them, except in certain areas that are designated weeder zones for my wife. All right, so... The permaculture and gardening is one thing, but I think that we need to look more at bringing the irrigation methodologies and ir irrigation mitigation technologies like culture in. And if we do that, we get a lot better results. Once we're producing food, what we're going to find is that when you start gardening or you start doing things like having chickens lay eggs or you start raising meat rabbits and things like that, sooner or later, or you start hunting and fishing, you end up with surpluses, right? It doesn't make any sense to try to grow food in a quantity that will be like, I can pick enough today for today and enough tomorrow for tomorrow and have no more than that because you can't hunt all year, you can't fish all year, you can't grow all year, you can't grow all crops all year long. In climates like mine, I grow something all year, but not everything all year. So it makes sense to plant with the seasons, to harvest with the seasons, to forage with the seasons in a way that creates an abundance, a surplus beyond what we can use. Some could be for barter or sale, but the best use of it is to preserve it for the future for our own use. Until we have such surplus, then that's the surplus we barter, give away, and sell. So we need to really develop on the house side the food preservation methods. My favorites, and I'm not going to go deep into them today, but just for kind of an overview, fermentation, lacto-fermentation has become huge with me. Dehydration, I love, and we can do that with electric dehydrators like the Excalibur, and I love my Excalibur. But if you're going to do large-scale dehydrating, I think it makes sense to build an external solar dehydrator. Very easy, great project. That goes back into skill development because it's construction, but it's into the how because it's the application as well. Canning. I think that canning, especially pressure canning, is one of the most critical skill sets for the home gardener. 
I mean, you can go in the, in the winter in a lot of parts of this country and plant, you know, right about now or a few months ago, depending on where you live, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of carrots in garden beds that would otherwise go to waste. High density, two inches apart, carrots do great at two to four inches. Right, and you can have a ton. We can do with that many carrots. I mean, you can keep them in the ground for so long, but eventually they start to go a little too far, and they start to split, and they're not very good, and they get woody and what all. So suddenly you gotta you gotta harvest that stuff, man. Chop them things up and and can that little butter, little salt heated up with dinner. Kids will eat it. It's like eating candy, but it's good for you. Without canning, I don't have it. A dehydrated carrot is fine for making soups and stews, but. For sitting on the side of your plate with a little butter and salt, yeah, no, it don't work. People say dehydrated and then rehydrated is the same as fresh are wrong, especially with certain things, carrots and green beans among them. But if we can pressure can, well, now we can pressure can meat. So if we're a hunter and we, we live in a state where we take two or three deer a year, we can take all that meat that normally just got turned into hamburger and frozen in a chunk, and we can either grind it and, and brown it and can it as ground venison, Or we can brown it and can it as chunk venison. It's instant stew. It's instant anything. It's instant tacos. It's instant, you know, whatever. I mean, we're not going to freeze any meat, but that's a convenience factor that is storable even when the power's off. But we can get, now we can get creative, right? We can go to store at, at, at uh, like, like Jackie Clay was talking about, right? Thanksgiving's coming up. Let's start putting turkeys on sale, you know, for 69 cents. And I know they're factory produced turkeys. But there's some good all-natural turkey out there, too, that they might sell for 89 cents. And you know when they sell that stuff dirt cheap? On the day after Thanksgiving, when everybody's going to the mall like a bunch of idiots to fight over saving five bucks off of a plastic piece of crap, go to the grocery store where nobody's at because everybody's full, buy about ten turkeys and go can that up. Before you buy ten, can one because there's a lot more meat there than you think and it's a lot more work than you think. But it's just an example. Go to local producers, you know, and 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 say, you know what, uh, what do you what do you produce? And if it's like beef or, or chicken or whatever, you know, how much do I have to buy to get a really good discount? Buy that stuff, can it up. Without canning, it don't happen. And it's a great skill, and boy, it brings a whole family. There's a lot of work to can it, but it's work for one day that plays out over and over and over again. Flash freezing is a great thing to know how to do too, though, and that's about learning. What needs to be blanched and how long to blanch it? Because like green beans frozen are even better than green beans canned. You know, you steam them for a few minutes. And this is my thing with flash freezing. Most people, the problem they have with their freezing is you blanch, which is steaming or boiling for a period of time, whatever needs to be frozen. And because of that, it's soaking wet. You drain it off as much as you can, right? And then you go and you put it in a bag and freeze it and it ends up in a block. So as long as it's a serving size, it's fine. But what about, okay, tonight I'm doing stir fry. I don't even need a full serving of green beans. I just want a handful of them. So the easiest thing to do is have some cookie sheets with some wax paper on them and get your deep freezer, your chest freezer, clear it out, set it up to where you can fit. As many of them will fit on a single layer in there. And as you're blanching, spread everything out on your cookie sheets, on your parchment or your wax paper, stick them in the deep freezer while you do your next batch. It only takes about 10 minutes. When they're spread out like that in a chest freezer, they, the, the, they've crystallized. The outside freezes on them. So by the time you got your next batch, you run in there, you throw them in your Ziploc bags, push the air out, seal them up, leave them in the freezer, and they'll freeze where they're not stuck together. You put your next batch in, you keep doing it until you're done. 
And all of a sudden, you end up with all these bags of all these different vegetables out of your garden, fresh, flash frozen. Way better than that crap in the supermarket. And that's easy. That's fast. And yes, if the power goes out, you've got an issue. But the reality is we already know how to deal with that issue, thanks to Steve Harris. And there's other ways we can deal that with battery backups, small generators. I got two incredible shows on generators coming for you Wednesday or Tuesday and Wednesday next week from Steve Harris uh, on generator systems. I mean, absolutely blow you away shows. And how you can take a little bitty generator and do most of what anybody needs in a major house other than central air and central heat. Uh, so that's coming. So we can handle that. So we don't throw that method away. Um, jerky and biltong. Uh, I've got some videos on making biltong. I'll put some links to it in today's show notes. But these are great other ways to preserve meat. And then I think brewing and venting. When we start brewing and especially venting, because when we start venting is making wines and meats. If we start growing fruits, making wines way easier than making beer. And it's actually more practical for the homesteader because you're more likely to be able to get most of or everything you need out of your backyard or out of your local community. Brewing beer means we need grain. And in many places where the local movement is really hot and microbreweries are really hot, they would love to source local grain, but grain doesn't just do well everywhere. And there's a long process to malting it and mashing it and all that other stuff. Venting is so simple. Making wine is so simple. And just about anywhere you live, you can grow enough grapes to make a significant amount of wine every year. And then you can start looking at things like apple wine and, and pear wine and all these different fruits and blueberries. You start learning about mead and either keeping your own bees or getting honey from local producers. There's so much that can be done with those. Um, Another way that we enable ourselves, though, the how component, is foraging. We start learning to forage, things open up to us. So, for instance, uh, I just talked about making wine. One of the most wonderful wines that you can drink as a table wine is dandelion wine. So, people that live in the suburbs and the cities and all think, oh, there's no foraging here. And then you go out and you look at highway medians in the spring and there's a bazillion uh, dandelions in, in bloom out there. Go pick the heads. Learn to make dandelion wine. Now you're foraging. Now, there might be places where you really don't want to do that due to chemicals and stuff like that. But people that are worried about car exhaust, get over yourself. Seriously. You're, you're, you're breathing in a billion parts per, per million of it a day. Don't, I just, God, I know that's wrong. A million parts per billion a day. Right, uh, but yeah, I mean, seriously, like exhaust, really? That's what you're going to worry about. But like when it's being heavily chemically treated and all. But here's the thing: when you see a place swimming in dandelions, it's probably not being heavily chemically treated, or they wouldn't be there. Got it? Right. So we can find places that you you can make excuses, or you can make a difference in your life. It's up to you. So foraging. When I was a kid, we used to forage blueberries, blackberries, wild strawberries. Um, there's a huge opportunity in learning to make acorn meal. Acorn meal is a great nutritional source. Uh, acorn pancakes, so it's like half flour, half acorn meal. Good stuff, you know? So, and that kind of goes into, as well, things like hunting and fishing as well. Uh, but learning to forage, and then learning to forage, er like I talked about resource identification. So foraging is also things like taking your truck out and filling it up with leaves from your neighbors for free. You're foraging an input. And now you don't have to buy the input. Foraging, we need to expand our understanding of that. Uh, bartering and buying from the local economy. It does so many things. One, if you don't think 
that getting a few hundred people in your local area to start participating in a local economy will make a difference. You're, you just don't understand mathematics and economics. It absolutely will because now the money's circling, circulating inside the economy versus heading out of the economy. Okay, so that's that's just a, a, a initial. But when you start to do business with local people producing locally, it's not about this yuppie, I'm all into the locavore thing crap. It's not. It's about why wouldn't you do business with your neighbor if you could? What the hell is wrong with us that we don't even think that way anymore? But we know it intrinsically. My neighbor runs a truck accessory uh, store. I have decided it's time to go ahead and put the toolbox I've talked about in the back of my Ford forever and get it done. So I want one of the toolboxes with like a 60 or an 80-gallon diesel tank underneath it in the back of that truck. Do you think I'm going to Tractor Supply, right? Or am I going to Scott's Place called Truck Buddy? I'm not even going to go there. I'm not. Why would I? I, I don't have He lives. I'll, I'll give him my truck. He'll take it to work that day, install it, bring it home. I don't care if I'll pay a little bit more. He's my freaking neighbor. Isn't that relationship worth more than saving 10 or 20 bucks by going to Tractor Supply? Not to mention, I don't even have to take it in. I got three vehicles. I just won't use one for a day. He'll probably end up selling me other crap I don't really need because he's my neighbor. Now, is the is the is the toolbox built in our neighborhood or our local area? No. If it was, though, I'd want one. I would try to buy what's available. But this is the bigger thing, right? So you have to talk to people when you do commerce with them. And when you're doing commerce with local producers, you're not dealing with giant box stores. That doesn't mean you don't go... See, and this is the thing where people are purists. Like, I don't believe you go to Walmart or Kroger after talking that way. Of course I do. There's things I can't get the other way. Right? There's a convenience factor. There's a necessitation factor. It's doing business this way whenever you reasonably can. And then you start to build that community and you build relationships And you find out about other resources and opportunities to forage and opportunities to do business with people. Because when you talk to people like that, it's not some 16-year-old kid behind a cash register going, oh, what is this? And you're going, it's freaking parsley, idiot, right? It's not that. It's somebody that's saying, hey, you're buying my parsley. Let me tell you how I grew it. You might have a conversation. You might learn something. You might develop something. Another part of the, the how is animal husbandry. We only take care of our own animals. Um, I used to be really big into herpetology, snakes and reptiles and things like that. And I still have about five snakes. I'm looking for a home for four big ones. I had a guy that might be taking two or four of them uh, soon. And if not, I'll, I'll let you guys know, and maybe somebody else wants them. But, uh, you know, there used to be this thing, you got to take your snake to the vet once a year. There's a lot of things you hear in these, like, getting started forms and stuff. No, you don't. I used to have 80 snakes. Right? I used to breed them. You know, 80 snakes in the vet once a year. Get out of here. There's certain things that you learn how to do when you're a breeder of reptiles that the average person that even knows what to do with a snake wouldn't know what to do. To deal with, like, impactions, how to probe baby snakes to tell if they're male or female. Right? There's certain husbandry items. How to deal with a snake that has a sticking shed where they're not shedding properly. How to make sure that the heat's... I mean, you learn to take care of it. Well, we got to do that with our dogs, our cats, our chickens, our ducks. 
We've got to, you know, work on that animal husbandry so that we're calling the vet in for the specialized needs of the vet, right? Not to do things that we should be able to do as responsible owners. Tool maintenance is another huge thing that we have to get right. Um, and that starts with buying quality. You know, the one I always fall back on to explain this is garden hoses and extension cords. You can buy a cheap extension cord, you'll buy another one next year. You can buy a cheap garden hose, you'll probably buy another one before the end of the season. Or you can buy the best damn thing you can get your hands on, and if something like a fitting wears out, cut the damn thing off and put a new fitting on it. Don't get rid of the whole 100-foot hose. Things like shovels and hose and pitchforks and all, learning to just basically clean that off, oil them up, oil our handles, replace the handle. These are things that we've lost because we've gotten into this mindset, I'll just go get a new one if it breaks. And then you wonder why your kid comes to you when their iPod won't hold another song instead of deleting some of the stuff they never listened to anyway and just wants a bigger one. Well, you've taught them how to do it. Your shovel broke, you bought a new one. They learned from you. Kids don't learn from what you say, folks. They learn from what you do. And it's not your parents probably taught you that. And their parents, your grandparents, if you're young enough, they were starting to learn that too. We got away from the concept of taking care of things, maintaining things. And industry has followed suit by building shit that breaks on purpose, designed to fail, designed to wear out, planned obsolescence. With technology, there's some purposes to planned obsolescence, but I don't buy it. We can build things that are upgradable. You know, we can build computers so that they're far more modular. Actually, they're pretty modular. There's another skill you could take up. How to upgrade a computer without replacing it. How to upgrade random access memory. How to upgrade processing power and things like that. How to upgrade operating systems. It's not that hard. You don't have to go buy a new computer every time something new comes out. And often, we're at a point today where computers have gotten so advanced that we don't need a new computer. You don't need a new computer to do just about anything. Unless your profession involves high-intensity resource use of a computer. If you have a computer you bought in the last two or three or four years, you probably don't need another one. What you might need to do is clean the damn thing out once in a while so don't overheat. Learn to take the cover off and use canned air to blow out all the dust and, and stuff like that. And, and, and keep it well-maintained. Right, So it doesn't have to be a shovel when I talk about tool maintenance. It can be something like a computer. Maybe you're keeping inventory on that sucker. Maybe it's more than just a way to play you know, video games in Facebook. Right? So tool maintenance is huge all across the board, learning how to sharpen our own tools. And if you don't know how to sharpen, you don't, some people just go, you know, I only have time to do so many things. Well, look for somebody locally that does sharpening. If, if, you, if there is nobody that does sharpening locally, maybe you need to invest in the equipment and not only be good at sharpening your own tools, but put out the word that if you need knives and anything, axes, chainsaw blades, whatever, I do sharpening. I know people that do things like they sharpen knives for two bucks a knife. But they can sharpen a knife in three to four minutes. Razor, hair shaving, sharp. You know, I even know people that offer two levels of service at it. You know, you want basically a sharp knife, it's 250. You want me to really work on this thing and put a really special edge, like a double beveled edge on it and all, it's five bucks. And I know people that make, you know, 60 bucks an hour doing that. You know, they, it's it, because they're good at it and they're fast. They have equipment to do it beyond just a, a stone. You use a belt sharpener or something like that. You know, there's, mo there's money in it and people will pay for it. 
And it, what ends up happening is a guy brings you his pocket knife and you sharpen it. And he for, you know, he's probably never really owned a good sharp knife in his life because he doesn't have the skill. And, and, and he, you know, he goes, he goes home and he goes to cut a tomato with his knife and it like mushes. And the next day he comes back with a box of knives and goes, can you sharpen all of these? I'll pick them up, you know, next week. <laughs> That's what happens to people that, that just, so there's an income generation thing off of tool maintenance with skill set development. It all holistically has to mesh together. Um, I think another thing though that we really need to do better as homesteaders is planning, scheduling our activities and our upkeep. So, We really need to know that some crops have really given us pretty much of what we're going to get out of them by a certain day. And if we leave them in there, they'll survive, they'll grow, but they're just really not going to produce anymore. You know, I did that with cantaloupe and watermelon this year. There was a couple little ones starting to form and all, but it was like, we need to open this bed and put something else in there. And once we start to plan what we're going to plant, we start to plan the seasonality of it, we can get a schedule. So we need to be occasionally looking at a schedule going, what am I supposed to be doing this week? That's putting your beds to sleep if you're not growing through the winter, or putting covers out, or starting seeds, or, you know, I'm going to do full tool maintenance, you know, three times a year. Everything's going to get pulled out, cleaned off, you know, I'm going to do basic maintenance all the time, but I'm going to really do it intensively two or three times a year, and I'm going to have it scheduled. You know, I'm going to go through the shade, all of that stuff, you know. The, the animals need to get their vaccinations or they need to be put on a new diet or whatever. All of that needs to be planned out better. And record keeping goes along with that. I think everybody that gardens and homesteads should have a garden book like Thomas Jefferson. When did you plant? When did you harvest? When did it die? What died? What didn't work? When did you see a deer? When did you see a squirrel eat your peaches? What year did you get good peaches? What? And, and five years of that information is priceless. So the how has to involve record keeping. The biggest thing, though, is community development. If you're homesteading without developing community, you're not getting anywhere. And I'm going to guarantee you, even people like Jackie Clay that we just had on that lives kind of in the middle of nowhere, she said we live in the middle of nowhere, but there's, there's people still around, right? They live in the middle of nowhere so they can do whatever they want, but don't think they don't have community. Don't think they don't know people. Don't think they don't know who to call, who to talk to, who to help, who to get help from. But we need to reestablish community development. Not in some freaking libertopian way, the way that the government wants to talk about community activism and, and, and crap like that. Just simply people knowing each other. Look, the fact that anybody in this country lives in a neighborhood, loses a job, and doesn't get help from all of their neighbors that have a job is a sin. And the only reason it usually happens is that the neighbors living there don't know each other and don't even know there's a problem. I guarantee you, if you talk to everybody in your block, or you don't have a block like us, everybody on your mountain, or whatever it is for you, everybody that's in that realm of influence, the minute that, that somebody needs help, the majority of people there, other than the turd, and there's usually one turd in every community or neighborhood, there's always a turd, Other than the turd, everybody wants to know what I can do to help. And if everybody's homesteading, first thing that shows up is food. The second thing that shows up are the, 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 the people that generally don't leave often, don't have regular jobs to say, hey, you know what? If you need to go to a job interview or something, try to find a new job, we'll watch the kids for you. Right? Little things like that can prevent the disasters that 9 million Americans are experiencing right now. 
Your government's taking the responsibility away from you. But there's something that we always say about our government that we need to turn around and apply to ourselves. You can delegate, and this is what I learned in the military, you can delegate your authority. You cannot delegate your responsibility. The government's taking the authority, not the responsibility. Just because what they take from you, they use irresponsibly, doesn't abjugate your responsibility to your neighbors, your community members. The responsibility's still there. Yes, you have less resources available to you to do it, but you have enough to do something. And it's amazing what a difference it would make for a family in the average neighborhood today if 10 or 20 people out of that community knew that they were on hard times and just said, we're all going to do just a little bit. And for most of us, we don't even have to sacrifice to do a little bit. You know, taking somebody a day, one meal every two weeks, you know, throwing together a casserole and going, you know what, don't cook Friday. Friday next week, I'm going to bring something over for you and the kids and the old man to eat and you guys just don't worry about cooking Friday. Two or three people doing that. Three or four meals a month. Should that person have been prepping? Should have they have been doing their... Yes, but they're not going to until they see it demonstrated. Homesteading is the greatest method of community development ever devised because it's the original community development. Don't think the people that rushed into the Sooner State for their 40 acres didn't know who had the 40 acres next to them and the other side and the other side and down the trail and up the road and on the other side of town. And don't think they didn't get together and don't think they didn't help each other. Don't think they were just rugged individuals. They were rugged individuals that made up a community. Modern homesteading, if we want to learn from the past and embrace the future at the same time, we need to not just learn the methods from the past that we think are cool, we need to learn them all. And back then, they had less resources, and less technology, and less transportation, and less of everything than we do today. So they had to rely on each other more, not less. And that's a big part of how we've lost it. The reason we've lost it is it because of Facebook and Twitter. It's because we have the ability to operate in a vacuum. They didn't have the ability to operate in a vacuum. And the reason you want it back is because it doesn't feel good to be in a vacuum. It doesn't feel good to not be in control. So I've said before, folks, what you do matters. But make it matter a lot. Make it matter for more than just you and your husband or your wife. Make it matter for more than just you and your children. Make it matter for their friends that come over to your house and see a better way. Make it matter to your friends, your kids' friends' parents who come over to have dinner. Make it matter to the little old lady at the end of the road by just going and telling her hello once a day and having a conversation with her for five minutes when nobody shows up. Make it matter for the, the people in your neighborhood who lost a job. Do something. Make it matter for the guy that's killing himself to try to start a business in this time. By saying, you know what, I'll pay a dollar more a pound to do business with him. Or whatever it comes out to. Make it matter. Make it matter or there is no future. We can wax nostalgically for the past. Or we can take the lessons of the past and build the future. That's what modern homesteading is to me. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 
Nobody up there cares. They're living for today. 